Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I am your host, Heather Tesco. I am thrilled that you downloaded this podcast episode. We are going to have such fun today. I'm really excited about this one. As I said, I'm your host, Heather, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. So this is episode 148. And it's a second episode where I'm looking at one specific year during the long 16th century. So a couple of months ago, I did this with the year 1527, and the feedback was really positive. So I'm back at it again with a new year, a very exciting year. This year is 1601. Why did I choose this year? Well, in many ways, it is a culmination of Elizabeth's time as queen, even though she would live for another year and a half or so. This is the year of the Essex Rebellion, also the year that one of the finest social programs ever created, the English Poor Laws, was passed. It's also the year when Elizabeth gave her final speech to Parliament. So let us dive straight in, shall we? One note, you can get show notes at englandcast.com slash 1601. I've done a lot of other episodes that I'll refer back to that relate to things in this episode. So um, you can check those other episodes out and my other show notes at englandcast.com slash 1601. So the 17th century began with intrigue and posturing over who the next monarch would be after Queen Elizabeth's inevitable death. Gloriana had been on the throne for over 40 years during that time she stabilized the currency, which we've talked about when we talked about Henry VIII's debasing of the currency. She found a compromise in religion that no one was truly happy with, which is, of course, the mark of a great compromise. And she beat off the Spanish Armada. But she would eventually pass on to another realm, though it was still treason to discuss the death of a monarch. And who would be her heir? 
There were several people in the running, although it was clear by this time that it would be James VI of Scotland, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. The myth around Elizabeth was starting to grow, and a very famous painting of her, there are a couple very famous paintings of her from this time. One dates from 1601, the procession portrait, which shows her in a procession being carried in a litter led by the Knights of the Garter. She's in full queenly regalia. She looks to be about 25 with clear skin and zero wrinkles or pox scars. There's another portrait by Marcus Gerhardt's the Younger, the famous rainbow portrait, which also she looks about 25 in, uh, even though she was in her late 60s at this point. So I'll put those portraits up if you're unfamiliar with them up at the uh, show notes at englandcast.com slash 1601. The only contemporary description of her that survives from this period is from 1597. It's by a Frenchman, André Yerol de Mas, the ambassador extraordinary from Henry IV of France. He had an audience with her when she was 65, and he noted, her teeth are very yellow and unequal, on the left side less than on the right. Many of them are missing, so that one cannot understand her easily when she speaks quickly. Yet, he added, her figure is fair and tall and graceful in whatever she does, so far as may be she keeps her dignity, yet humbly and graciously withal. There was this sense in the air that time was waiting to change, that we were in a holding period. In 1598, Elizabeth's godson, Sir John Harrington, who is also famous for having invented the flushing toilet, said that the feeling in both Oxford and Cambridge was a kind of weariness of the time, mundus senesit, that the world waxed old. The world's decay and the queen's decay were one and the same, and there was a sense of waiting for the next upheaval, which was both exciting and also quite terrifying. For Elizabeth, she was struggling with depression. Her dearest friends had left the world before her. And after the betrayal of her final favorite, which happened in February of 1601, she increasingly seemed to struggle with depression, followed with bouts of what we might call mania. This is also, though, the height of the golden age of Shakespeare. In 1600, Shakespeare's history plays Henry IV Part II, Henry V, The Merchant of Venice, also A Midsummer Night's Dream, Much Ado About Nothing, were published. It was also just a few years off from the first English colony in Jamestown, and England was building up a scientific and trading empire. So starting off the year 1601, actually, a day before, on the 31st of December 1600, the East India Company was granted their royal charter, which was the culmination of several years of work and lobbying. For a period of 15 years, the charter awarded the East India Company a monopoly on English trade with all countries east of the Cape of Good Hope and west of the Straits of Magellan. In 1601, the first voyage left England. It was a ship called the Red Dragon, built in Deptford in 1595. It was captained by a Sir James Lancaster. It left London with four smaller ships in February of that year, although it would take them until April just to leave the English Channel because of the winds. They were gone for two years, and during that time, they captured a 1,200-ton Portuguese carrack, and Lancaster would be knighted by James I on their return. Interestingly, several years later, the first confirmed recorded performance of Hamlet was on the Red Dragon, although it was likely first performed in London in 1601. 
Also in 1600, William Gilbert had published De Magnete, which was the beginning of England's leading on the scientific revolution that would happen, of course, in the 17th century with the Royal Society and the Enlightenment. The official name in English of this book was called On the Magnet and Magnetic Bodies and On That Great Magnet, the Earth. And it was one of the first successful scientific books published in England. It was all about the Earth's magnetic field. Gilbert also made a claim that gravity was due to the same force of magnetism. He believed that this magnetism was what held the moon in orbit around the Earth. And that is, of course, not correct by our modern understanding, but it was still a lot closer to what we believe than what the ancient Aristotelian theories had believed which is that heavenly bodies consisted of a special fifth element that naturally moves in circles, while earthly elements naturally move downward. Johannes Kepler actually accepted this theory and used it as the working basis for his very famous laws of planetary motion. So we enter 1601 with this feeling of kind of a general sort of waiting, a holding pattern, a weariness when it comes to the monarch and Elizabeth herself, but so much good stuff is happening in the world as well. That of course did not extend to Catholics who were busy being persecuted Recusants were trying to defend themselves. The famous composer William Byrd was dealing with the English legal system in 1601. He had an indictment against him that he and his family hadn't been to church. In fact, according to the 1601 complaint, they had utterly refused to come to church. In 1601, the Earl of Worcester was talking about current musical fashions at court, and he said that In winter, a lullaby, an old song by Mr. Bird, will be more in request, as I think. So William Bird's music was very standard in the repertoire of the court music at this point, even though he was a Catholic. Speaking of Catholics, the bonds that would lead to the planners of the gunpowder plot just a few years later were already forming, and they were building their own relationships and friendships. A Jesuit priest named Edward Oldcorn was conducting illegal masses around Worcestershire, but in 1601, he was dealing with a health issue, likely throat cancer. And it was those networks of Catholics performing masses, the Jesuit priests performing masses, and the old Catholic families hiding them that would eventually lead to the gunpowder plot just a few years later.
But the new year at court started out with a great drama, and this was a real-life drama, not the Shakespearean kind. Robert Devereux, the Queen's last great favorite, was up to some plotting. So let's talk about the Essex Rebellion. Robert Devereux was the son of Lettuce Knowles that made him the stepson to Robert Dudley. That was, of course, Elizabeth's true love. And when Robert Dudley married in secret, it made Elizabeth very, very angry. Robert Devereux, the Earl of Essex, I'll just call him Essex from now on, performed military service under his stepfather, Robert Dudley, in the Netherlands before coming to court and winning the Queen's favor. He first came to court in 1584. By 1587, he had become a favorite of the Queen. He was really witty. He was intelligent. He was a showman. He was just kind of one of those people that had the it factor. In June of 1587, he replaced his stepfather, Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, as the master of the horse. And then after Leicester's death in 1588, the Queen transferred Leicester's royal monopoly on sweet wines to Essex, and that gave him revenue from the taxes. But he seemed to think that he was really invincible, and he kind of rose above his station, to quote a Hamilton lyric. (laughs) Anyway, once during a heated Privy Council debate on the problems in Ireland, the Queen apparently cuffed him on the ear, and he responded by half drawing his sword on her, which that right there is treason. His military career was a series of ups and downs. In 1589, the Queen ordered him not to take part in Francis Drake's English Armada. That was the armada that England sent to Spain after they defeated the Spanish Armada. They kind of wanted to press home their advantage and go to Spain and knock Spain out as much as they could while their own armada, Spain's armada, was suffering. And the Queen had said that he shouldn't take part in that, but he still did, so he went against her wishes. Then in 1596, he was part of the capture of Cadiz in partnership with the Dutch forces, of course, also in Spain. And then again, he defied the Queen's orders in 1597 when he was in the Azores with Walter Raleigh, and he pursued Spanish treasure fleet without first defeating the Spanish battle fleet. But his biggest failure had been in Ireland, where the Spanish and Scots were supporting the Irish in their fight against England. So he took 16,000 troops to Ireland to put down the rebellion. But instead of facing their leader in battle, as he had promised to do, he ran around the countryside wasting his money fighting small battles with minor leaders and allowing the Irish to win two other major battles in other parts of Ireland. Eventually, England actually had to sign a peace deal with the leaders. And the Queen told Essex that had she wished to abandon Ireland, it would scarcely have been necessary to have sent him there. Then he came back to England without permission. He famously barged into the queen's bedchamber before she was fully dressed and caught her without her makeup, which is a cardinal sin against any woman, not to mention the queen of England, who's in her late 60s. Then the council declared that he had been negligent in his handling of Ireland, and he had been confined to York House under the custody of one Richard Barclay. He also lost some of his income then, including that very lucrative monopoly on sweet wines. That leads us to 1601. In January of 1601, he had some kind of New Year's resolution, I suppose, saying that he had had enough and he was going to fight back. And he said that the queen was being poisoned with lies about him. So he began to fortify Essex House, his town mansion on the Strand, and he gathered his followers. One thing that he had done throughout his career was create a lot of knights. So he had a lot of people who owed their stations 
to his support, so he was able to gather some followers. On the morning of the 8th of February, he marched out of Essex House with a party of nobles and gentlemen, some who were later involved in the gunpowder plot, and he entered the city of London in an attempt to force an audience with the Queen. The Queen's advisor, Robert Cecil, immediately had him proclaimed a traitor. They put a barrier across the street at Ludgate Hill. Essex tried to force his way through. They withdrew back to Essex House, and then he surrendered after the Crown forces besieged Essex House. He was, of course, tried for treason, which must have been incredibly painful for Elizabeth, but it was clear he was guilty of it. She really didn't have a choice. And he was found guilty on the 25th of February, 1601. He was beheaded on Tower Green, becoming the last person actually to be beheaded in the Tower of London. It was reported to have taken three strokes by the executioner Thomas Derrick to complete the beheading. And the queen went into a depression and greatly grieved Essex, and really who could blame her? It was a very sad situation. Several of Essex's poems were set to music. English composer John Dowland set a poem called Can She Excuse My Wrongs with Virtue's Cloak? A beautiful song. In his 1597 publication, First Book of Songs, These lyrics are thought to have been written by Essex because of a dedication of the Earl of Essex's Galliard, which was an instrumental version of the same song. shall we? Again, hearkening back to the previous episodes, episode 125 was all about the poor laws of the 16th century. So I won't go into a ton of detail here. But during the 16th century, England had to deal with how to care for the poor once the monasteries had been dissolved. That role had traditionally been handled by the monasteries, caring for the poor, providing education and health care. The whole episode that I did on that show, Being Poor in Tudor England, number 125, led up to the 1601 Act for the Relief of the Poor of 1601, the 1601 Poor Law, which was the basis of dealing with English poverty for 200 years. It also formed the American legislation around poverty as well. 170 years later, Ben Franklin would comment that the 1601 law took away the incentive for people to work, for it made their lives too easy in poverty. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. That's all I'm going to say about that. So here's what the great 1601 poor law did. It separated poor into impotent poor, people who couldn't work, old, sick, orphans, blind, or disabled people, and able-bodied poor. So the impotent poor were cared for in almshouses or in a poor house. The law gave relief to people who were unable to work, many of those who were lame, impotent, old, or blind. Then there was the able-bodied poor. They were to be sent to work in a house of industry. Materials were to be provided for the poor to be set to work. Then there was the idle poor and vagrants, where they were to be sent to a house of correction or even prison. And pauper children would become apprentices. 
1601 Act was administered by the parish, and there were about 1,500 parishes in England based on the area around the parish church at this point. So that meant that those who were overseers would know who the poor people were in their parish individually, would know and understand their circumstances, and be able to divide them into the deserving and undeserving poor. The people who paid the taxes to help with the poor included the landowners and some tenants. The other issue with the reliance only on the parish, though, is that if there was a local problem like a bad harvest, it meant that more strain was put on that particular parish that year rather than possibly having a national pool to handle the relief. There were no national standards in place, so there was a lot of variation in how the relief was given out. Parishes were left to interpret the law on their own, and each parish was legally responsible for their own poor. And that means that some cities gave out much more poor relief. Some poor people did try to leave and go to more generous parishes, so that by the mid-1600s, the poor law was amended so that you had to be a resident of the parish that you were seeking relief from through birth, marriage, or apprenticeship. And if you couldn't prove that you were a resident of that parish, you were moved to another parish where you could prove that you had a connection. There was plenty to criticize in the Tudor and Elizabethan poor laws, but the 1601 law, as I said, is the basis of social welfare systems in America, Australia, and many other places. It was the first time that a law was passed nationally to try to deal holistically with the problem of poor people and recognize that society had a legal duty to care for its most vulnerable citizens. So for that, there actually is a lot to praise about that 1601 law. And it's also interesting to think about this shift where the poor relief went from being something handled by the church to poor relief actually becoming a secular duty handled by the government. In May of 1601, a secret correspondence began with Elizabeth's counselors and James VI in Scotland. Back in February, James had sent ambassadors to negotiate to be named the official heir, thinking that he would be negotiating with Essex, who was, at this point, being executed. James then gave his ambassadors new instructions that they should walk surely between the precipices of the queen and the people and he encouraged them to go forward in private negotiation and secure individual support of key towns. His ambassadors gained the confidence of Robert Cecil, and an understanding on the succession seemed to have been reached, but their success was kept secret. Robert Cecil requested that James would not seek an English parliamentary recognition of his claim to the throne, and that future correspondence with the Scottish ambassadors should be secret even from Elizabeth herself. And until the death of Elizabeth, two exchanges of letters between England and Scotland were kept up. There was the usual communication, and then there was the secret correspondence. So we have the official route of diplomacy, and then we have this kind of underlying one that was the secret one. And apparently there are questions about whether Elizabeth knew about these secret communications or not. The English diplomat Henry Wotton gave an anecdote that she had once noticed mail arriving from Scotland and she demanded to see it. And Cecil went to open the satchel, but he told the queen that the mail was filthy and smelled bad and she could have the letters after they were aired. So again, it's unclear if she was actually unaware of these negotiations or not. 
But perhaps the most important event in this very busy year was Elizabeth's speech to Parliament in November. Her golden speech was going to be the last speech that she gave to Parliament. Events started off with an official blunder in this, her final parliament, her 10th parliament, that excluded many members of the Commons from the Parliament chamber, so they missed the opening ceremony. Then they gathered together, they settled down on a fierce attack on monopolies, although this was actually something that Elizabeth had supported. Her councillors failed to calm them all down, and the Queen sent word that she was going to address the wrong immediately by proclamation. Suddenly, the commons went from very upset to being very happy about this. They asked if they could send a deputation to wait on the queen and express their thanks. Three days later, the promised proclamation was issued, and the queen invited all of them to come to see her at Whitehall. On November 30th, the speaker and 140 members of the commons went into the council chamber and kneeled at the queen. She welcomed them, saying, Mr. Speaker, we perceive your coming is to present thanks to us. No, I accept them with no less joy than your loves can have desire to offer such a present and do more esteem it than any treasure or riches. For those we know how to prize, but loyalty, love, and thanks, I account them invaluable. And though God hath raised me high, yet this I account the glory of my crown, that I have reigned with your loves. This makes me that I do not so much rejoice that God hath made me to be a queen, as to be a queen over so thankful people, and to be the means under God to conserve you in safety and preserve you from danger. Then she told them all to stand up, and she said, It is not my desire to live or reign longer than my life and reign shall be for your good. And though you have had and may have many mightier and wiser princes sitting in this seat, yet you never had nor shall have any that will love you any better. Of course, everyone kind of assumed that she was going to be speaking to them for probably the last time. She was clearly old, and this was probably her last parliament. And they were very upset. Some of them were in tears at the end. She asked every one of them to kiss her hand before they left, and they were all very, very moved. So this golden speech is actually seen as the symbolic end of Elizabeth's reign, even though she would still reign for another 18 months until James VI of Scotland would become James I of England. Now, later in November, our friend Edward Oldcorn, who we talked about at the beginning, the Jesuit priest, he went on a pilgrimage to St. Winifred's Well at Holywell in North Wales to obtain a cure for his throat cancer. That pilgrimage seemed to work for him because his cancer seemed to go away for a while, and he lived long enough to potentially plot with the gunpowder conspirators to blow up Parliament in 1605. Although that event we'll have to wait for another episode on another year. So that's it for this week. There's a lot of sources, a lot of other previous episodes, a lot of books, everything like that. I'll list them all in the show notes at englandcast.com slash 1601. Let me know what you thought about this episode. You can get in touch with me through the listener support line at 801-6-TESCO or facebook.com slash englandcast. Thank you so much for listening. And I will be back in another couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Blow, northern wind, ascend for baby sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hote bord in Bauerbrick, at Polisen.
It was reported to have taken three strokes. It was reported to have taken. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 